Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, February 23rd, 2024, the 1,129th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I hope you forgive me for not putting an episode up yesterday after five hours of Alexei Navalny content from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I figured that was plenty to keep people busy. And I expected that after all that, we might be able to move on from Alexei Navalny. But it turns out we can't. It's still happening. But who knows? Maybe today will be the last day of Alexei Navalny talk. Hopefully we can 
keep it contained to the first segment here. I'm going to do my best. So let's get started with the fake president, Joe Biden. This report was actually from Wednesday. Biden headed out to California for a fundraiser in San Francisco and Reuters reports President Joe Biden called Russian President Vladimir Putin a crazy SOB during a fundraiser in San Francisco on Wednesday, warning there is always the threat of nuclear conflict, but that the existential threat to humanity remains climate. This is the last existential threat. It is climate. We have a crazy SOB like that guy Putin and others, and we always have to worry about nuclear conflict, but the existential threat to humanity is climate. Biden told a small group of donors, well, actually, it's neither. Neither of those pose an existential threat to humanity. But of course, the global regime tasked with responding to these crises that they create, they actually do pose an existential threat to humanity. Reuters notes that this is not the first time that Joe Biden has ever called someone a son of a bitch. They also write Biden has a tendency to go off script during election fundraisers and in recent months has dug into the Chinese government, the Republican Party and U.S. ally Israel for its bombing of the Gaza Strip. Biden's verbal attacks against Putin have also sharply intensified at the White House and on the campaign trail. Last week, the U.S. president blamed Putin and his thugs for the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Now, something I had in my notes but forgot to include in the Navalny series was the fact that while all of this was going on, Vladimir Putin said that he actually supports Joe Biden for American president. He wants Joe Biden to come back. And why wouldn't he? Not only is Joe Biden feckless and incompetent, he is not running things for himself. He does not seem to have access to all the tools and the powers that a legitimate president might have access to. And for as long as Joe Biden is in that position, being the public face of the United States of America and the global regime at large, Vladimir Putin actually has more leverage. Vladimir Putin looks stronger, more competent, more capable. Over the course of these last three plus years, Vladimir Putin's power has not diminished. It has grown, as has the collective power of Putin and his allies, not only in the BRICS coalition, but also in what can be described accurately as an alliance of sovereign leaders representing sovereign nations around the world as this multipolar world order emerges. In fact, last week, The Economist printed a rather panicky article with the headline, National Conservatives are forging a global front against liberalism. And I'm not going to go all the way through this, but it is an interesting article. Let's just hit a couple of paragraphs here. This new form of conservatism marks a radical departure from the sort that prevailed in the era of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Instead of sunny optimism and a view of America as a shining city on a hill, as Reagan had it, it sees decline and American carnage, as Mr. Trump puts it. The idea that Donald Trump does not reflect American optimism is preposterous. His slogan is make America great again. He says all the time, everywhere, that he believes in American greatness. He believes that we will be successful in achieving American greatness. 
recognizing in his inaugural speech in 2017 that we had been through a period of American carnage is not the expression of a dark vision of the future. In fact, he said that the American carnage stops right here and stops right now. This is such a silly reframing of Donald Trump's position. In place of muscular internationalism is a profound skepticism of foreign wars and multilateral organizations. Its economic policy is much more aligned with the left's style of thinking, skeptical of big business, willing to accept a large welfare state, concerned with working class hardship and keen to preserve domestic industry and jobs through protectionism. Now, that is not the left's style of thinking. There is nothing leftist about believing that if there is a government, it should serve at the behest of and serve the interests of the actual people. I'm not sure where they're getting the acceptance of a large welfare state. I have never heard anything about that in Trump's agenda. Working class hardships are important if you care about a strong and stable society and global quote unquote free trade from the view of the regime, that is not a reflection of their free market values. That is a reflection of the fact that they are trying to create a borderless world. And being skeptical of big business is not a leftist idea either, especially when the government is rearranging things to help these big businesses profit. They're changing the law to allow for the consolidation of these transnational corporations, eventually monopolizing entire industries and working hand in hand with our government to implement that global regime agenda. It's certainly not leftist thinking that makes us oppose the worldwide implementation of a leftist order. But of course, the goal is to make people who support these positions look hypocritical and ignorant. Proponents of national conservatism argue that elections this year will cement it as the West's dominant right wing ideology, dispelling any notion that it is simply a flash in the pan. Just like in 2016, when the Brexit vote foreshadowed Trump's November victory, I think you're going to see the European parliamentary elections in June of this year foreshadow a big sweeping victory for the populist movement in the United States, says Steve Bannon a former advisor to Mr. Trump who spent years trying to light populist fires. President Trump is our leader in this movement, but this movement has got permanency to it. Now it's in the process of building institutions. It's not going away. It's only getting more powerful and bigger. And of course, he's right about that. And if you want to know what the Trump administration plans to do in the next term, you can search for Project 2025. There is a 900-page report where they break down how they plan to totally reshape the federal bureaucracy. Now, we can hope that Trump just dismantles many of these agencies, removing them completely from the federal government, but there might be a stepwise process toward getting there, and Project 2025 lays out a plan for how they're going to reshape the federal bureaucracy, new personnel, new policies they plan to pursue, etc. This isn't like 2016, where they're just going in kind of blind. This time, they're going in with a fully built out support system ready to be put in place 
to begin dismantling the deep state and the administrative state. Jumping down to the end of this article, when George Orwell pondered the question of nationalism in the waning days of the Second World War, he wrote of its dangers this way. Nationalism is power hunger tempered by self-deception. Every nationalist is capable of the most flagrant dishonesty, but he is also, since he is conscious of serving something bigger than himself, unshakably certain of being right. And that may well be true for what Orwell perceived as nationalism at that time. But that's one of those words with some different definitions, and it really matters quite a lot how they're being used. The claim that we are a sovereign nation responsible for ourselves and that other nations are sovereign nations responsible for themselves and wanting our nation to outcompete those other nations while understanding those other nations will be attempting to outcompete us. That could be called nationalistic, but that's not the sort of notion that Orwell was worried about. Back to The Economist. Much the same criticism could be leveled at many national conservatives. Although some, like Ms. Maloney, govern within the rules, many of the movement's most prominent figures, including Mr. Trump, Mr. Orban, and Mr. Kaczynski, are so convinced of their own correctness that they do not mind subverting the state to maintain power. And I don't know if we could ever find a notion more preposterous than that. Donald Trump won the 2020 election, knew he won the 2020 election, had evidence to prove that he won the 2020 election and still stepped aside to avert civil war. That is not someone who is subverting the state in order to maintain power. Courts are not seen as an important independent check on the executive, but as an obstruction that ought to be made more pliant. Again, absurd. The media are treated in much the same way. Mr. Trump even went as far as trying to overturn an election. National conservatives insist that their movement is compatible with, not antagonistic to, democracy. Yet most of its prime exponents are intent on retaining power. It already dominates right-wing politics across much of the Western world. The elections of 2024 could help it to dominate politics full stop. Now, this is analysis of the false reality. It is totally incoherent as a result. But putting that aside, this is still a recognition from the global regime that they absolutely do have a sovereign nationalist problem. Their plans for the global order are evaporating. So over the course of these last three plus years, as Joe Biden has pretended to be a legitimate president of the United States, Vladimir Putin's power has grown. The power of his allies has grown. The power of that decentralized alliance has grown. And the power of the global regime and the illegitimate president of the United States who serves as its face has faltered. Their power has diminished. For that reason alone, Putin would be crazy to not want another term with Joe Biden. Sure, maybe he has a nicer time with Donald Trump as they both try to make the world a better place. And Biden goes around supporting the Nazi armies that are trying to kill ethnic Russians. That can't be a good time. But in terms of Russia's long-term interests, they are served by the ongoing diminishment of the global regime, which is inevitable while the fake president Joe Biden is seen as a key figure. 
The next day, Reuters reported on the Russian response to Biden's crazy son of a bitch comments. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told Reuters the use of such language against the head of another state by the president of the United States is unlikely to infringe on our president, President Putin, but it debases those who use such vocabulary. He said the remark was, quote, probably some kind of attempt to look like a Hollywood cowboy. But honestly, I don't think it's possible. And you got to say he's right about that. Biden looks about as weak as any figure who is said to be president of a nation could ever possibly look. His tough guy bit is an act and no one buys it. Peskov continued, has Mr. Putin ever used one crude word to address you? This has never happened. Therefore, I think that such vocabulary debases America itself, adding that such language was a disgrace for the United States. And you have to wonder why our mainstream media isn't agreeing with Dmitry Peskov here. I remember when Donald Trump called Kim Jong-un little rocket man. They got very upset at that. They said he wasn't presidential. A Russian reporter caught up with Vladimir Putin to ask him about the comments and, of course, the conversations in Russia. But the translation is, you asked me who is preferable for us as the future president of the United States. I said we would work with any president, but I think Biden is more preferable to Russia. And from what he just said, I'm absolutely right, because it's an appropriate response to what I said. He can't tell me, well done, thank you, you have helped me very much. We understand what is happening there from the domestic political point of view. And this reaction is absolutely adequate, which means that I was right. And what I said was best for us. As I said, then I still think I can repeat Biden. And that's nice. Even though Joe Biden called him a crazy son of a bitch, Vladimir Putin is willing to forgive Biden and continue to endorse him. And of course, those crazy conspiracy theorists who support Joe Biden will just say that Vladimir Putin is actually lying about who he wants to be the American president. He's just saying it's Biden to hurt Biden. So while the fake president was in California, this happened. All right, this just in a few moments ago, crossing the wires right now, the president met with Alexei Navalny's wife and daughter on Thursday in California. That was the Russian opposition leader uh, who came to an untimely death in a Russian prison and whose body has still not been returned to the family. President Biden evidently making time to meet with them uh, during his fundraising trip to California. So how about that? The Manchurian candidate who might replace another Manchurian candidate has now flown to California to meet with the fake president of the United States. Now, the cover story for her trip to California is that her daughter attends Stanford. So fine, fair enough. The story is she flew to be with her daughter. And you are absolutely welcome to accept that. I suppose there's a slight chance that it's true. But during that time, she happened to meet with the illegitimate president of the United States for some reason. So in the five days following the reported death of her husband, she heads to the Munich Security Conference, gives a speech, takes some meetings, and then flies to California to meet with the fake president of the United States. Naturally, there was a photo op, and those photos were posted on social media. The official at POTUS account has Joe Biden, a picture of him as he looks over Yulia Navalny's back. He's 
embracing her, providing comfort for this poor woman. And then there's a photo of Joe Biden sitting in a chair, very attentively listening to Yulia and Dasha Navalny. His caption says, Today I met with Yulia and Dasha Navalny, Alexei Navalny's loved ones, to express my condolences for their devastating loss. It's interesting to say loved ones and not wife and daughter. Alexei's legacy, of course, will live on in Yulia and Dasha and the countless people across Russia fighting for democracy and human rights. And again, Alexei Navalny barely has any support in Russia. They are essentially trying to co-brand the illusion of a real movement behind Navalny so that when they elevate his wife, it will make sense that the movement naturally follows her. Plus, bonus, his wife, at least as far as I know, doesn't have those previous associations with extremists and neo-Nazis. This meeting between Biden and the Navalny's should seem like a co-branding opportunity. Yulia is elevated. She is seen as a more serious character, someone who takes meetings with the very real president of the United States. And it is a good co-branding opportunity for Joe Biden, who's being seen with someone portrayed as a sort of freedom fighter, a resistance figure to the brutal dictator, Vladimir Putin, who launched a brutal invasion against Ukraine. And tomorrow, by the way, will be the two-year anniversary of that. It is also the celebration unfolding right now in Russia of Defender of the Fatherland Day. Now, we discussed a number of possibilities for how the Navalny death reports could be exploited by the regime. And today we are beginning to see yet another way as the illegitimate Biden administration has announced a sanctions package against reportedly various Russian individuals and Russia-associated entities before the package was announced. This is from yesterday on RT.com, Russia Today. Our state media will tell you this is Russian state media, so consider the bias going in. Information among other information. The headline, Seize Frozen Russian Assets in Navalny's Name, German MP. Russia's assets that remain frozen in the West should be confiscated in response to the death of opposition activist and anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny, German parliament member Norbert Rotgen has said. This money could be used to provide more arms to the Ukrainian military for use in the conflict with Russia. Rotgen suggested in his speech to the Bundestag on Wednesday legislation that would allow the confiscation of an estimated $300 billion in assets owned by the Russian Central Bank, which were blocked by the U.S. and the EU after the outbreak of the conflict between Moscow and Kiev in February 2022, should be named Navalny Laws, he added. And the article includes a series of quotes from various European political figures agreeing that all of these assets should be seized and then given to Ukraine and Ukrainian allies. The article concludes, Moscow has repeatedly said that the seizure of its funds by the U.S. and the EU would be tantamount to theft and would trigger a response. Russian officials have also warned that such an illegal move 
could further undermine global trust in the Western financial system. Now, on Wednesday, in part three of the Navalny series, I played some audio from Andrea Mitchell and globalist Michael McFall, where he was laying out the case to seize these assets and use that money. They basically just decided at the beginning of the so-called war to freeze all of these assets. And now using Navalny's death as a justification, they want to confiscate those assets and give them to other people. They're not getting enough money flowing into Ukraine to keep all of the various criminal enterprises running, to keep the war going, to keep various pockets lined. They believe they can get their hands on this money and redeploy this money. So, hey, why not take this money? It's okay to steal from Russians. I mean, after all, they just killed Alexei Navalny, even though there's no proof of that anywhere. And it's all based on the idea that Vladimir Putin has already attempted to assassinate Navalny, for which there also is not any proof. So that was yesterday in Europe. This is today in the good old U.S. of A. This is the New York Times this morning. Biden announces sanctions on more than 500 Russian targets. The subheadline, a package of economic restrictions to be rolled out on Friday, will be the largest since Russia invaded Ukraine two years ago. President Biden announced on Friday that the United States would impose sanctions on more than 500 targets in its response to Russia over the death of the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, the largest single package in a flurry of economic restrictions since the country's invasion of Ukraine two years ago. The new measures, which are set to be rolled out by the Treasury and State Departments on Friday morning, come after the White House signaled this week that it was preparing major penalties after the recent death of Mr. Navalny in a Russian prison. It is not clear which sectors or individuals the Biden administration plans to target, a crucial variable in the sanctions' ultimate expansiveness and effectiveness. If Putin does not pay the price for his death and destruction, he will keep going, Mr. Biden said in a statement. And the costs to the United States, along with our NATO allies and partners in Europe and around the world, will rise. The fake president added that the sanctions were in response to Russia's, quote, ongoing war of conquest on Ukraine and for the death of Alexei Navalny, who was a courageous anti-corruption activist and Putin's fiercest opposition leader. They will include new measures targeting Russia's defense industrial base, its financial sector, and people connected to Mr. Navalny's imprisonment. As the war approaches its third year, the Biden administration has become increasingly reliant on using its financial tools to try to damage and isolate Russia's economy. It has worked with allies from the Group of Seven Nations to cap the price at which Russian oil can be sold on global markets, frozen hundreds of billions of dollars of Russian central bank assets and enacted trade restrictions to try to block the flow of technology and equipment that Russia uses to supply its military. The United States has been closely coordinating with Europe in its efforts to cut Russia off from the global economy. This week, the European Union unveiled its 13th tranche of sanctions on Russia, banning nearly 200 people and entities that have been helping Russia procure weapons from traveling or doing business within the bloc. 
Britain also announced sanctions this week on companies linked to Russia's ammunition supply chain, as well as on six Russians accused of running the Arctic prison where Mr. Navalny died. Despite the effort to exert economic pressure on Russia, it has largely weathered the restrictions. China, India, and Brazil have been buying Russian oil in record quantities, and spending on the war effort has stimulated the Russian economy, which the International Monetary Fund said last month was growing faster than expected. On Friday, Mr. Biden reiterated his call on Congress to provide more funding for Ukraine so that it can defend itself against Russia. The failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will not be forgotten, he said. And again, we hear the same old refrain, the same old threat. History is going to record you as one of the bad guys. You're going to be on the wrong side of history, man. Well, no, no, I don't think so. That would only be the case if the same people who have always written and rewritten history are once again allowed to write and rewrite history. And it is our mission not to allow that. It's not like they only manipulate narratives in real time in the present day. They manipulate our history and always have. When we fail to comply, they tell us that what we are doing is going to cause us to repeat history. And of course, we will be the evil people in this repetition of history when they write the history of this moment in the future. They're basically saying, hey, don't you understand that if you don't go along with what we're telling you to do, we are going to call you Nazis in the history books? And they absolutely will do that if we allow them to do that. If instead... We reject their narrative in full and speak and write honestly about what is happening throughout this age, then maybe in the future, people will understand that they are the actual Nazis, which is why, by the way, they're supporting Nazis in Ukraine and in the world right now, we can see them doing all those things that we grew up learning Nazis did like medical experimentation and segregation and creating concentration camps and work camps and using censorship and propaganda and political prosecutions and stealing elections and changing laws outside of the bounds of the Constitution. They are doing all those things. And if we fail to comply with their agenda, they're going to call us Nazis. And of course, they already do that anyway. Now, we are seeing with this sanctions and seizures issue. What we saw last week in microcosm with that Trump fraud case in New York, where Judge Angeron, that creepy weirdo, decided that despite the fact that no one was injured and no one is upset and everyone involved in the deal thinks that things went just fine. Nonetheless, Donald Trump tried to defraud the banks and failed, ignoring the fact that he had a full disclaimer in the financial statements saying you, the bank, must do your due diligence. These are only estimates from our viewpoint. Angeron determined that Trump would owe $355 million plus interest. They think he's going to owe somewhere close to half a billion dollars because Letitia James decided that Donald Trump's accountants at Mazars we're trying to defraud the banks on his behalf, making him responsible. And now he has to lose 
all of his businesses. She has come out and said that, by the way, if he's not able to pay all of that money, she's got her eye on a few of his buildings that she would be happy to take. We are seeing an illegitimate government essentially rewrite our laws, exploit our judicial system in order to confiscate the wealth of someone they see as their key opposition. And they want to make it impossible for him to do business. They want to take everything he owns. They're not going to get there, of course, but that is still the lesson of that whole trial. And we are seeing essentially the same lesson play out on the world stage. They've decided on a number of bad guys. They have given themselves the authority to freeze their transactions and their assets. And now they are giving themselves the authority to seize them. Now, going back to the end of that RT article for just a second, Russian officials have also warned that such an illegal move could further undermine global trust in the Western financial system. Now, if you were participating in the Western financial system, if you were a rich and powerful individual who may not agree with the political agenda of the global regime and the collective quote unquote West, you might have reason to worry that you shouldn't have your wealth held in dollars. You wouldn't want your business and your wealth intersecting that Western financial system because when they get mad at you, they can just turn your money off and take it. Will this backfire spectacularly? Yeah, it probably will. But here's the other thing, and this is an important conversation that we'll probably have to have more of in the future. What is the assessment on asset seizures from wealthy individuals if, in fact, those wealthy individuals have profited off of associating themselves with, for example, the World Economic Forum or transnational corporations who were collectively involved in crimes against America or crimes against humanity. If it was definitively proven to the point where it was publicly accepted that George Soros, Bill Gates, whoever else you want to pick, were actively involved in crimes against America or crimes against humanity. You can talk about the COVID and the vax thing. You can talk about the stolen elections. You can talk about the censorship and the propaganda, whatever it is, if they were involved with that, and it was possible to seize and confiscate their assets, will that be justified and will it be necessary? It seems to me like that case in New York with Judge Angeron and this whole sanctions package, if indeed it does include these asset seizures, and it seems like it will, are similar in the fact that they provide a template for what we might see in the future with prosecutions going the other direction. If, for instance, Barack and Michelle Obama, let's say, are worth something like $300 million. And I imagine it's probably quite a lot more, but let's just take a big number like that. And we also got to the point where everyone understood that Barack Obama spearheaded this subversion, this soft coup that played out for four years during Trump's first term and has continued since the shadow government that he ran. If everyone understands that Barack Obama was personally involved in all of that and personally responsible for all of that, and that his wealth, his fortune was all acquired as a result of his complicity in the subversion of the United States of America, 
Should all of those assets be frozen, confiscated, and then somehow redeployed? What about Soros? What about Gates? I actually believe that we will see that process play out, and I believe that we might already be seeing that process play out. It was just announced yesterday that Vice Media has folded. Last year, it was announced that a Soros-associated group was heavily investing in Vice Media. Well, where's that money now? And what would it mean for someone whose wealth was acquired through their complicity in crimes against America or crimes against humanity or complicity with this global agenda as it subverts the United States of America? But what if all that money was also the direct result of the global regime's central bankers printing more fiat regime bucks currently branded as the U.S. dollar? What if all of their wealth was simply conjured out of nothing by the central bankers and done so under the authority of an illegitimately sat Congress? Would American citizens still be on the hook for that extension of their indentured servitude in order to cover the printing of all those additional regime fiat dollars? These are complex questions that are going to play out in the future. These are issues we are going to have to deal with. Now, I think that we are already watching these issues be dealt with. I often refer to it as drainage. If you ever hear me talk about drainage or see me post gifts from the movie, There Will Be Blood, the final scene there with Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano, this is the sort of thing I'm talking about. We have a corrupt person or business or entity that has been complicit in these crimes against America, these crimes against humanity, the implementation of the global regime's agenda, depopulation, for instance. Do they just get to keep their wealth and their power? Does the business just keep on running? How is that stuff handled? I think that we are seeing how it's handled. The funds are extracted, moved into a different investment, and then they disappear. Now, I'm not sure that I can prove all of this to you. But what I'm sharing is an assessment of a pattern that I have been picking up now over the course of nearly two years. I've been thinking about this since it was first announced that Elon Musk would be purchasing for $44 billion, the greatest information weapon in the history of the world from people who are already billionaires. That didn't make any sense. It also doesn't make any sense to me that something like $5 billion held by Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal was invested in Twitter before Elon Musk's so-called purchase and remains invested in Twitter after, particularly knowing that Mohammed bin Salman went after Al-Walid and supposedly froze and confiscated those assets. Here is Daniel Day-Lewis explaining. That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you lose. take this lease, Daniel. Great! You have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw. There it is. That's a straw. Watch it. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! Don't bully me, Daniel!
And then the whole scene just goes haywire. But that is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about drainage. Now, these Russian sanctions and these asset seizures have been a subject of discussion now for two years. It gets brought up here and there. They keep trying to find ways to exert leverage over Russia, and they keep failing to do so. Russia and China have largely separated their economies from the dollar. The dollar has been used as a control mechanism around the world for decades. And a lot of people say that's the source of America's strength. And of course it is. But that doesn't work if everyone else stops using the dollar. And that's exactly what's happening. Reuters reported on these sanctions yesterday. The package was actually addressed by none other than Victoria Newland. Headline here, new U.S.-Russia sanctions to target banks and weapons components. The article says that Under Secretary of State Victoria Newland said some of the sanctions would target those responsible for the killing of Navalny, but most will hit Putin's war machine and close gaps in existing sanctions regimes. They will also target countries that helped Russia evade sanctions it currently faces and banks that allow evasion. We will have a crushing new package of sanctions, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them in the next couple of days. And some of them will be targeted at folks directly involved in Navalny's death, Newland said in remarks at the Center for Strategic and International Studies think tank in Washington. She said that she anticipates as time goes on, they'll put forward more sanctions. Newland acknowledged that sanctions already in place have not stopped Russia's defense industry. He and his tricksters have found a lot of gaps. She said, oh, they're so tricky going and protecting their country, even though it makes Victoria Newland mad. But she said the new sanctions would address that. When you see this package in a couple of days, it is very heavily focused on evasion, on nodes and networks and countries that help evade, willingly or otherwise, and the banks that support and allow that kind of evasion and some of the inputs for the weapons. She also specifically noted Russia's use of Iranian drones, that Moscow has an agreement with North Korea, and Moscow's growing economic integration with and dependence on China. So they're going to target Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China, and who knows who else. So this has been something that has long been in the making. They are using Navalny's death to justify this. And as I have pointed out many times, we should be immediately suspicious when we hear them announce an action that they claim to be a reaction to something bad that has happened that they need to solve. But the action that they plan to carry out in response is something that they have already wanted to do for a long time. It is quite clear that they were pursuing this sanctions package and this seizures package well before it was reported that Navalny was dead. They are using the reports of Navalny's death that they have attempted to pin on Vladimir Putin as the justification for something they already intended to do and very likely already intended to do at this particular time. It is incredible how quickly they were able to totally dispose of Navalny the man while continuing to use and even enhance Navalny as a brand. Navalny's wife is the new star. 
Navalny's death is the justification for these sanctions and seizures. Navalny is more effective while dead than he was while alive. And considering who's using him, maybe there's an indication of who it really was who caused his death. Now, let's take a look at this article from the Center for European Policy Analysis. This is from January 28th of this year. So nearly a month ago, the headline of the article is seizures, Kremlin assets, confiscating the Russian central bank's reserves is right to mark the two year anniversary of the full scale invasion of Ukraine. The West should seize the Russian central bank's $350 billion in foreign assets. This would have profound symbolic and practical benefits boosting Ukrainian morale, displaying unity, punishing Russia, and filling the Kyiv government's fast-emptying coffers. One argument against this is that the international financial system depends on trust. It should not be subject to political whim. Seizing other countries' sovereign assets is against the law. If the West believes in property rights, it must practice what it preaches. Another argument is that asset seizures are a card best played later in negotiations about post-war reparations. A third is that this move is unprecedented and therefore bad. But Russia cannot expect protection from an international rulebook that it tore up by attacking another country, destroying its infrastructure, murdering its people, and seizing its territory. If the law does not allow the seizure of another country's central bank reserves, the answer is simple. Change the law. Parliamentarians in Estonia are doing just that, and U.S. senators have also backed a new law. Western countries did this with oligarchs' assets. They can do it with the Kremlin's own money, too. Russia will certainly respond. Western companies in Russia may have their remaining assets seized. Tough. Nobody made them do business in a gangster state. They chose to do so because they were naive, cynical, greedy, or stupid. They must learn that these failings come at a price. Now that is all kind of insane. There are plenty of multinational corporations who were operating in Russia prior to Putin's very brutal invasion of Ukraine. Now, many of them moved out at the beginning But the idea that they were stupid for staying and continuing to do business in Russia and therefore it's okay that Russia seizes their assets in response to this totally illegal seizure of Russian central bank assets is nuts. But let's continue. Other regimes, particularly those thinking of invading neighboring countries, may decide that their cash will be safer in Moscow or Beijing or Tehran, Caracas, or Pyongyang for that matter. And so the author just listed Iran and North Korea and added in Venezuela. Good luck to them. The Western financial system will survive. Dollars, euros, and pounds are popular for a reason. The lesson of the past two years is that sanctions that nobody thought possible are in fact feasible. Even freezing Russian central bank assets would have been regarded as insanely bold. We did it at the start of Russia's full-scale war. It worked. It was the same story with removing most Russian banks from the SWIFT payment network. As the former World Bank boss, Bob Zolik, argued recently in the Financial Times, 
If Western countries are bold enough to send weapons that kill Russian soldiers, it is odd to regard transferring Russia's assets to Ukrainian victims as too risky. To sweeten opinion, some of the frozen money could go to compensate poor countries hurt by higher food and energy prices, he suggests. So they want to take $350 billion worth of frozen Russian central bank assets and then distribute it however they see fit because Russia should have never launched their full-scale war and because Alexei Navalny is now dead. But of course, they had their justifications prior. Their justifications are always ad hoc. We need to accomplish X, therefore we need to do Y. And yes, we understand that Y is against the law and it's never been done and it might have outrageous and extraordinary consequences, but we should still be allowed to do it because we want to do it and we need to do it. The coalition behind asset seizures is growing. Bill Browder, a former Moscow-based financier turned Kremlin critic, took the campaign to Davos, an annual Swiss shindig for plutocrats. That should worry the Putin regime. Browder pioneered Magnitsky sanctions, named after his murdered lawyer, which target Russian bigwigs. For years, supposedly knowledgeable people poo-pooed such measures. Now they are part of the arsenal of statecraft. Also at Davos was Britain's David Cameron, formerly prime minister and now foreign secretary, and a born-again foe of the Putin regime. Better to seize Russian assets now, he said, than wrangle about reparations later. And yeah, from their perspective, of course, there's not going to be any reparations later. They have no way of enforcing any of this. They're not going to win the war. And again, over the course of these last few years, the global regime has only been diminished. They are trying to turn the tide of this entire thing, not just the Russia-Ukraine war, but the advance of sovereignty worldwide. Yet so far, Western countries have mostly tiptoed around this subject, issuing empty political statements or suggesting half measures such as diverting the profits from Russia's holdings, but not the assets themselves. Estonia's admirable initiative in preparing the necessary legislation has not been echoed yet, at least even in other frontline states. Do these decision makers think they will gain points for hesitancy? Seizing Russia's assets is morally, politically, legally, and strategically right. It dismays the Putin regime and bolsters Western credibility. The sooner we do it, the better. And it is amazing to make that claim just a few paragraphs after stating that even if they aren't legal, they should just change the laws. Think about what it means when the people who are able to change the law at will suggest that changing the law at will is the right thing to do when they're not able to do something they want to do because it's against the law. That kind of clues you in to how they think of our laws. That's also how they think of our Constitution. The legal system they've put in place was designed to facilitate their agenda. And when the laws don't do that, they change the laws. What do you think they want to do with the people if the people won't facilitate their agenda? Do you think they're just going to let them vote in free and fair elections? They didn't even care if the people wanted to get a vaccine or not. 
It is only the exercise of power in pursuit of certain outcomes. And it's worth remembering that all of this chaos and manipulation is a product of their own illegitimacy and incompetence. And they are attempting to adjust to this on the fly. Now, we've talked about how Joe Biden is being taken down from a public perspective, both sides of the mainstream media, as they are in the Fonnie Willis situation, are now happy to go after Joe Biden. The uniparty right wants to portray itself as opposing Biden, even though the uniparty right going along with the results of our stolen elections is the only reason that Joe Biden is even seen by anyone as a legitimate president and the uniparty left wants to move on to someone else. And throughout this process, they are attempting to reframe various aspects of the illegitimate administration and reframe certain policies. And Politico on Monday took an interesting stab at this in an article with the headline, Jake Sullivan's revolution. This is from the 19th. It describes how Jake Sullivan is helping to shift policy in the illegitimate Biden administration and kind of be the face and the intellectual driver behind what they're calling Bidenism. And so Politico tells the story of a speech that Jake Sullivan gave before the Brookings Institution, who counts among their most prominent members, the author of the Color Revolution playbook himself, one Norm Eisen. So Sullivan is at Brookings. Let's pick up on the Politico article about halfway down. The Bidenism that Sullivan helped define has infused every corner of this administration's foreign policy. A focus on the home front was one reason Biden chose to withdraw from Afghanistan. A rock-ribbed belief in keeping U.S. forces out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict has helped shape America's response. And China's decades of cheating in global economics led Team Biden to adopt some elements of Donald Trump's trade war. The elements of Trumpism that Biden and Sullivan adopted, though they would probably prefer the term populism, could help Biden fend off Trump's ideological challenges to his foreign policy heading into the 2024 election. To arrive at this new outlook, they write, Sullivan first had to dismantle establishment orthodoxies within himself, the same orthodoxies he now sought to undo at Brookings, that globalization and free trade were an unalloyed good, growing economies and improving people's lives in the process. What was good for the stock market, in effect, was great for everybody. Given enough time, swelling wallets would produce a steady middle class, one that demands its political and human rights from its government. Even the most repressive regimes, the thinking went, would eventually crumble under the weight of inflowing capital. Consistent pressure via greenbacks did the most good for the most people. And this sounds exactly like the neocon goal of spreading democracy worldwide. Now, we've talked many times about how neoconservatism is not conservative at all. In fact, it is just a movement whose ideological roots are found in Trotsky. It is just militaristic communism in service of globalism. The idea being that when you go in, you infuse capital, you use the military to eliminate the parts of society holding you back. You're going to bring that money in there. 
They're going to see how great things can be under a quote unquote Western democracy and all of society will commit themselves to the global regime's cause. Brookings, of course, has been one of the leading think tanks in supporting the globalist agenda. And Jake Sullivan is being presented as the man who represents Bidenism in challenging this orthodoxy. And let's return to the examples they just used. So if you are like me and like many of the people in Badlands and you understand the theory of devolution, you think maybe devolution is happening. I often say it actually doesn't matter if what is happening is devolution. I still think it is absolutely true that something is playing out behind the scenes. Donald Trump did not just simply walk away. And no matter what that looks like, there is still a backstop in place. There was some sort of plan made and actions taken that would thwart the worst tendencies of the illegitimate regime, no matter what they were. Whatever access to the powers of the presidency Joe Biden might have, he wouldn't have all the powers. He wouldn't be the one ultimately making the final decisions. Certain policies would remain in place and other policies would have to be put in place and the illegitimate Biden administration would have to conceive of some way to sell it to America that they were doing it and that it was something that was part of their agenda, something that would be good for their cause and good for the American people. And it's not hard to conceive of how difficult that might be to give a full-throated, powerful support for things that you don't want to do and things that are working in opposition to what your stated agenda is. And they've listed a few of those here. Let's go through a bit of that again. A focus on the home front was one reason Biden chose to withdraw from Afghanistan. Now, did Biden choose to do that? No, not really. It was already set up. The date had been defined by Trump and whatever input there was from elements of the illegitimate administration or the global regime only served to create more chaos. And it ended with the fake president accidentally droning an Afghan family. The entire situation was an absolute disaster and an embarrassment on the world stage. The article mentions a quote unquote rock ribbed belief in keeping U.S. forces out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But does anyone believe that? They've been trying to establish some offense to NATO that would require the United States to get involved at that level, but they've been unable to sell that story as well. Two years in, and they continue to claim that they are refusing to put American boots on the ground in Ukraine. And of course, the idea that the fake president is responsible for our trade policy with China, that could not be more absurd. But it's been noted on various occasions over the last few years, particularly the State of the Union speeches and some other speeches that the fake president has given, that he seems to be adopting MAGA policies and MAGA values and MAGA communication, trying to present himself as some moderate Democrat that actually cares about what's happening in America and wants to make America great. Politico is now presenting Jake Sullivan as the driving force within the illegitimate administration, bringing Bidenism closer to what could be called an America first agenda further down in the article. 
Instead of rampant globalization, Sullivan's pitch was that a re-energized American economy made the country stronger. It was time to remake the Rust Belt into a cobalt corridor to establish industries that not only led to blue-collar work, but to azure-collared careers. If that was done right, a strengthened America could act more capably around the globe. So you see that it's not just dumb manufacturing and industry like Donald Trump wanted the Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan version. Well, that's about smart, high tech American manufacturing and industry. Further on in the article, Sullivan, the accomplished debater, was dismantling point by point the dominant worldview that Biden held for decades and that the national security advisor grew up believing until Trump won the election in November 2016. He was, wittingly or not, offering a mea culpa for once being an acolyte of the foreign policy establishment. Now, cloaked in power, he was trying to right his perceived wrongs. And down near the end, the speech served as the grandest example of the significant rethink that occurred in the Biden administration's first half of the first term. A self-proclaimed A-team came together to move beyond the Trump era, but in some ways they embraced elements of it, not the nativist demagoguery, but the need to return to fundamentals, a healthy middle class powered by a humming industrial base, a humility about what the U.S. military alone can accomplish, a solid cadre of allies, attention to the most existential threats and a refresh of the tenets that sustain American democracy. Sullivan proposed an old roadmap to a new future. Now consider everything that we've been told for the last nearly nine years since Donald Trump has come down the escalator. Donald Trump was wrong about absolutely everything. And not only was he wrong, he was evil in being so wrong. You see, Jake Sullivan is trying to protect American jobs while Donald Trump is expressing his nativist demagoguery. The policies and actions that would have been framed as unsophisticated or racist or xenophobic are now just part of Bidenism because Jake Sullivan spearheading all of these policies. Well, that's going to make them smarter and more moral. And it's okay that the media is going to try to run cover for the Biden administration by framing all of these issues this way, but that doesn't make it true. And certainly Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan don't believe that Trump actually had the right idea about all these things, but was just approaching it in the wrong way. From the global regime perspective, Donald Trump has been clearly portrayed as the biggest threat they have ever faced. But we are also supposed to believe that he was kind of right about some of the policies, and they have come to see that over these last few years. And we are supposed to pretend that that makes sense, that that's coherent, not that there's some other explanation. And it could be that Joe Biden actually isn't the one in control of these things. Now, I know that's one of those bold conspiracy theories that people really have a hard time getting on board with because they think, well, I can't prove this. So somebody's going to call me dumb. They're going to say I'm a conspiracy theorist. They're going to tell me to prove it. I'm not going to be able to prove it. And then they're going to know they're right. And they're going to make me feel bad about myself and the things I know. And that's when you remember that these people wore masks in their cars and that they pretend Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. 
And you might think, well, they're not all stupid like that. And that's true. I don't expect everyone to come to this point of view, but it's kind of noteworthy that over three years into this fake administration, there are still examples provided by reality every day to support the claim that something else is going on. And the illegitimate administration is doing a whole bunch of things that not only advance America first agenda items right now, but that prepare for a future where the America first agenda will be implemented more fully. It seems to me that there is no reason to believe that anyone in the Biden administration would be pursuing these policies at all, much less Jake Sullivan in a speech before the Brookings Institution. But I know, I know, it's a crazy conspiracy theory. We need a lot more proof. Well, thankfully, this is NBC News from Wednesday. Biden administration weighs action to make it harder for migrants to get asylum and easier to deport them faster. Now, that is awfully strange for someone who has been facilitating this global slave trade. The Biden administration is considering taking unilateral action without Congress to make it harder for migrants to pass the initial screening for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border and quickly deport recently arrived migrants who don't meet the criteria, say three U.S. officials with knowledge of the deliberations. The actions, which are still weeks away from finalization, are an effort to lower the number of migrants crossing the southern border illegally as immigration remains a top issue for voters heading into the 2024 presidential election. And of course, it is a top issue for voters, not just because it is a real issue, but because the mainstream media has been covering it nonstop now for the last five months, trying to apply enough pressure, create enough tension and chaos that people will support anything they are told might alleviate the border issues. And that is exactly what they were told about the quote unquote border package that was meant to be the gift to us for agreeing to extend our indentured servitude to fund these fake foreign proxy wars. Under the new policies, asylum officers would be instructed to raise the standards they use in their credible fear interviews. The first screening given to asylum seekers who are trying to avoid deportation for crossing the border illegally and immigration and customs enforcement would be told to prioritize recently arrived migrants for deportation in a last in first out policy. The officials said a congressional aide with knowledge of the deliberation said the Biden administration has yet to make a decision, but raising the bar on asylum and deporting more newly arrived migrants are considered low-hanging fruit and actions that can be taken quickly. The three U.S. officials said it is unclear whether the policies would be achieved through executive order or a new federal regulation which could take months to implement, making it harder to claim asylum and fast-tracking migrants for deportation are not new ideas, but they are being considered more seriously as the Biden administration looks for ways to tamp down chaos at the border after Republicans blocked border security provisions in the National Security Supplemental Bill earlier this month. Remember, it is Donald Trump's fault and MAGA Republicans' fault for not passing this border security package that wouldn't actually create border security. All it would do is increase the surveillance state at the border, which would then be turned inward to the United States, 
increasing the surveillance state in our cities and towns. And of course, we can see that expansion already. Next time you're on a drive, you're stopped at a traffic light. Look up, see if there are surveillance cameras up there watching every move, tracking every car that passes the intersection. They also wanted more personnel to facilitate this global slave trade. They wanted the processing to be faster and more efficient so they can bring in more people. They've been setting up essentially concentration camps in Central and South America for what they call pre-processing of asylum claims. So if you make it to Colombia or Guatemala and you are planning to claim asylum in the United States, they have pre-processing centers where they will process your asylum claims before sending you onto the border so that once you get to the border, you're not creating more chaos. You're just allowed right on in. Everything is already taken care of. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into this project to build these processing facilities in other countries. And they're not even the country next door for an asylum claim. You are supposed to flee your country to the nearest possible place you can claim asylum and find safety. You're not supposed to cross through three or four countries in order to claim asylum where you want to claim asylum, which in this case is the United States, because you were promised housing and medical care and a job when you got there. So the fake president had said a couple of weeks ago that he needs Congress to give him the power to handle these border issues. And now it seems that he's taking at least some action on his own. And what action is that? Well, it's the sort of action that Donald Trump talks about all the time. What would happen if Joe Biden went out there and started talking about deportations? All the communists who've spent the last three plus years pretending that Joe Biden really received 81 million real lawful American votes would have an absolute meltdown. The fact that it's happening does suggest that devolution or something like it might be in play. And in the meantime, the absurdity of the Uniparty's stance on immigration continues to become more obvious. This is a headline from Wednesday in the New York Post. Non-citizen Chinese immigrant is sworn in on San Francisco's election commission. A Chinese immigrant has been sworn in to serve on San Francisco's election commission despite her lack of U.S. citizenship raising national security concerns as one U.S. senator warns that Chinese President Xi Jinping is playing the long game. Kelly Wong, an immigration rights activist who came to the U.S. in 2019 from Hong Kong for graduate studies, was unanimously appointed by San Francisco's Board of Supervisors to the city's Elections Commission on February 14th. She is believed to be the first non-citizen ever to sit on the commission after California voters approved a measure in 2020 to eliminate the citizenship requirement to sit on San Francisco boards. And it is worth noting that California's ballot measure process is absolutely as open to election fraud and election theft as any of their other elections are. And in many ways, the ballot measure process is even worse. They can fund a massive campaign to gather the signatures to get a ballot measure put on the ballot in the fall. Then they spend more money to frame the issue, including the description of the issue and the arguments for it in the voter guide that the secretary of state sends out and on the ballot when you actually go to vote. And of course, there are virtually no election security measures in place in California 
at all. So to change California law, all you basically need is enough money to spearhead the operation and permission from the California regime to do that. So in light of that, what does it mean that San Francisco residents had passed a ballot measure allowing non-citizens to sit on San Francisco boards? She actually gave her victory speech in Chinese. It's wild. She said, there are always voices inside my head like, you can't do it. You're not competent. You're an immigrant. This is not your country. Wong told KQED following her historic appointment last week. If I can do it, you can do it, she said. In her new position, Wong, who cannot legally vote, is one of seven people who will oversee and implement policy for the Department of Elections. She will oversee voter registrations, vote-by-mail ballots, voting locations, and election observations. The appointment is a milestone for all immigrant and marginalized communities throughout San Francisco, Wong wrote on her now-deleted LinkedIn profile last Thursday. Representation matters, she said. Thousands of immigrants living in the city hold stakes in politics, and there is no better way to have us be represented than to serve in leadership positions. I am deeply committed to ensuring that everyone, regardless of immigration status, has a seat at the table in shaping the future of our city, she added. Wong said she hopes to increase voting engagement among immigrants and those who do not speak English. They are basically coming right out and saying, yes, we want illegal immigrants to vote. That is part of why we're bringing them here. And I know that is a crazy conspiracy theory. They don't want illegal immigrants to vote. They just put in a ballot measure, passed that ballot measure, appointed a Chinese national to the elections board who says it is her goal to get immigrants involved in voting, whether or not they can speak English because they're residents there. They have a stake in the local politics. Wong said, even though I'm fluent in English, I still encounter challenges in navigating a new system, let alone participating in political conversation and activities. Well, yeah, you're not from here. Imagine you went to China right now and told them that you demand voting rights. Imagine going to any country in the world and upon getting there, telling them, I'm going to require housing, medical care, employment, and voting rights immediately. That would be insane. At that point, there would be no purpose in even having countries. And of course, that's exactly their agenda. It would be like you traveling to a neighboring state and just seeing what you thought was a nice house from the road. You park your car, you get out, you go into the house and you uh, take over a bedroom. And I know what you're thinking. If I did that, someone might shoot me. Well, hey, give it another few years of allowing these commies to take over the country. And don't worry, there won't be any guns. And I know that story is kind of a bummer. So I'm going to improve things for you. This is also the New York Post from Wednesday. NYC law that would have allowed 800,000 non-citizens to vote struck as unconstitutional by appeals court enacted in violation. A controversial New York City law that would have allowed 800,000 non-citizens but legal residents 
to vote in municipal elections was struck down as unconstitutional by a state appeals court Wednesday. We determined that this local law was enacted in violation of the New York State Constitution and municipal home rule law and thus must be declared null and void. Appellate Judge Paul Wooten wrote in the 3-1 majority decision. Wooten said the state constitution broadly refers to only citizens having the right to vote in elections, municipal as well as statewide or for state legislative offices. Article 9 provides that the elected officials of local governments shall be elected by the people, which incorporates by reference the eligibility requirements for voting under Article 2, Section 1, applying exclusively to citizens, the judge wrote. So at least that's some good news. Once again, it's worth recognizing they actually do want illegal aliens to vote in our elections, or at least they want the option to cast votes in the name of those illegal aliens. They will be more than happy to register those illegal aliens to vote, to harvest their ballots, to mark their ballots and cast their ballots on their behalf. They obviously don't care about the political opinions of illegal aliens. They don't even care about the political opinions of United States citizens. And it is always worth remembering that when they are doing things like this, when they are trying to pass laws like this, it is almost always to make legal in retrospect something illegal they've already been doing so that when they are caught for it, they can claim, well, the voters of New York have already passed policy that says what we did is legal, so you can't very well charge us with a crime for something that the voters of New York don't think should be illegal in the first place. It's amazing what you can accomplish with stolen elections. All right, so I'm not going to get into a lengthy discussion about the AT&T outages yesterday that were attributed to solar flares. Obviously not true. We were given a variety of other explanations as well. Who knows what actually happened? Maybe we will find out one day. Maybe we won't. We still don't know exactly what happened with the Christmas Day Nashville bombing in 2020. And that may have had something to do with the fact that it happened right in front of or maybe right on an AT&T building as well. But you never know. Maybe they'll tell us. You can't say we didn't have any warnings. And no, I'm not talking about Q posts or Elon Musk tweets. I'm talking about these posts from Wednesday warning about potential asteroids on Thursday. Insider paper quoted KTLA out of Los Angeles saying that a massive satellite falling to Earth was likely to break up near California. And they followed by saying that a satellite weighing as much as an adult rhino was going to crash through the earth's atmosphere on Wednesday. And now maybe that caused AT&T's outages earlier in the day. The Jerusalem post said that according to NASA's asteroid tracker, an asteroid the size of over six adult Indian peacocks is set to pass close to Earth on Thursday, February 22nd. Six adult Indian peacocks? The only question at that point is, are you talking about 
unladen adult Indian peacocks? Or are they carrying a coconut, perhaps by the husk? Now, what in the world would ever make anyone think that I should describe the weight of a space rock in terms of adult Indian peacocks? It makes no sense. Is it comms? Maybe, maybe that's comms for real. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about comms, quote unquote. But why is the Jerusalem Post telling us about an asteroid the size of six adult Indian peacocks? And you know me, I get curious about things and I looked it up. I typed into a search engine asteroid the size of and hit enter because I want to know if this is just how you measure asteroids. And it turns out that there are all sorts of seemingly random things that are used for measuring the size of asteroids. And also, by the way, the Jerusalem Post seems to be really, really in to their asteroid prediction and weight comparisons. Here are some examples. An asteroid the size of eight Taylor Swifts. An asteroid the size of six Darth Vader's. An asteroid the size of a grand piano and Truthfully, that is actually kind of normal. I can accept that comparison. How big is that asteroid? Well, it's about the size of a grand piano. That's fine. That's fine. Just don't give me six adult Indian peacocks. Don't give me eight Taylor Swifts. An asteroid the size of a hundred hot dogs to pass Earth on Monday, according to the Jerusalem Post, July 12th, 2023. Also, just Two months earlier, asteroid the size of 48 eggplants, an asteroid the size of Texas, an asteroid the size of 64 Canadian geese, an asteroid the size of 18 walruses, an asteroid the size of 74 Connor McGregor's. An asteroid the size of the Brooklyn Bridge. An asteroid the size of London's Big Ben. An asteroid the size of 69 American alligators. And finally, the Jerusalem Post says, AI spots huge asteroid the size of 182 beavers that humans missed. I guess it must have been just too difficult to measure 182 beavers from that far away. But also, oh yeah, by the way, we totally sent an unmanned spacecraft out into the universe that put a lunar lander on the far side of the moon. It was called Odysseus, just like the guy who created the Trojan horse. And all of that has to be true. The news said it. Trust the science. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month 
comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!